Hi, and welcome back to Beyond the Mountains of Madness, The Keeper's Debrief number two, which confusingly covers uh, chapters two, three, and four, and which make up for session two and three. Confused? Good. So we just finished playing the third session, which covered uh, chapter three and four, and before that, um, we've been on kind of a long hiatus uh, we played through chapter 2, which um, has all the manifests and stuff in it. And so I thought I would just kind of talk through a little bit of, of um, what I remember from that and, um, and what, I, what, what we just played through um, just now and to, to try to kind of cover um, some of the problem areas that uh, I feel that you might run into with, um, with these chapters. Now, let's start at chapter two. Um, the so we've we've almost played through all of New York by now, and um, I have to say that New York is a really it's probably one of the more challenging things about this campaign because uh, and one of the reasons why I had I felt like I had to do a lot of preparation work up front to kind of imbue my players with the idea that they should not expect for shit to hit the fan fast. It takes a long time for this campaign to get started and New York is, is you know, really the, the reason for that. Um, for us it took, you know, uh, so far it's taken 10 hours maybe to go through. You know, so that covers everything from meeting the expedition members uh, and, and getting signed up and all this stuff, going through the manifests. Uh, a couple of notes, a, a stolen package, some follow-up on that. There's a funeral. There's an interview with Lexington, and of course, you know, uh, um, the bulk of it is, is like the the manifest. And then finally, it feels like the bulk of it is a manifest. It's not really in in actual play, depending on how you actually kind of spread it out. But um, and then ending in in the fire on the the dock. Um, so in chapter two, we went through the manifests, and the manifests are really the most contested part of this campaign. I think There's, there are two things that people who dislike the campaign uh, dislike about it. And number one is uh, the manifest, and number two would be the it's kind of linear nature, and I'll probably speak a little bit to that too because it is pseudo problematic at times. But I don't think it's as bad as some people make it out. I, I actually very much enjoy linear campaigns, I think, um, I don't think that the players necessarily see it as linear as long as you give them freedom to do what they want to do, you know. So I'll, I'll speak a little bit to that because the, it's slightly problematic sometimes in the configurations of players that we, we play with uh, or have played with for the last two sessions. So an unfortunate thing happened. We, we have five players. We're, um, we have one more coming uh, after this session. And of those five players, several of them have families and stuff, and so sometimes they have things that interfere with um, with them playing. And, and so we had some cancellations last minute, and which uh, so last time and this time we played with only three people out of the five that we have, and that means that you're you're losing out on a lot of the character um, uh, uh, kind of mix-up that you would get. And, and for us, that meant that we we didn't have the um, the journalist, uh, both this time and last time, which is a real shame because 
our journalist is is deeply rooted in New York and has all the skills to kind of help research. And, and the player as well is somebody who who really goes after um, uh, research and, and trying to find out find out more story and stuff like that. So so I had to push a little bit harder for for that to work. But um, we we play through. Uh, you know the the manifests um, last time in a way where or the previous time actually in the best way I can kind of come up with and I think in retrospect it might not have been the best um, way to do it. It depends a little bit on on how you you look at it. I think it depends on your group very much uh, how they take this kind of thing. The manifests, of course, is just a whole heap of things that you have to read through and uh, tell small stories around. And I love my players very much, but they're not the kind of people who really do that sort of thing. If, if you do have players that are great at, at kind of contributing to the story in, by, by, you know, talking about, uh, you know, sour cream missing or stuff like that, then, and, and engage in role-playing sessions around trying to resolve that stuff, then it's, I think it's great. You, there's actually a lot of room there to, to, to really dive into it. And I, we just don't have that kind of a group. So, so I chose to um, just go through it, just go straight through it, uh, read them out, or have them read out what they were going through and, and tell them you know, if it was missing or whatnot, and just handle the whole thing in one big fell swoop, even though you know, in-game in it's really spread out over the course of these uh, you know, seven, eight, nine days. Um, and then um, I... When we were done with that, we went on and did all the other stuff that happens over those seven, seven to nine days, and then I would just kind of refer back to the manifests every once in a while. And you know, I think very much it depends on your on your group. If if your group is into storytelling, I think you should actually split it up and, and say, look, um, you can do one of these pieces of paper per day, and then that's like the that's the work you go through during the day, and then you also try to cover the other story angles that are that are there to to make it, give it a more organic feeling and give it more a sense of the ongoing work and stuff. But it is, it is a very controversial thing, these manifests, and I totally understand that a lot of people find it hard to understand why it's, it's a good idea to go through um, and, and understand what the expedition is bringing, but it actually gives you a lot of context and a lot of uh, insight into what it's really like to go on this expedition and what kind of things you're gonna, you're gonna run into. One of the big things for us was, um, you know, for instance, seeing the equipment, but also seeing a caustic soda. We didn't know what it was for, um, but it turns out it's actually for scrubbing air free of CO2. So you, um, you put it in the, the oxygen tents. Um, so that's really interesting because rather than, than you forget to talk about that or, or having it not be a part of it, that little nugget of information helps deliver some realism to the game and also helps people kind of, oh yeah, that's right, we're, we're going to be doing high altitude um, you know, exploration and stuff like that. And, and it sets up the idea that they're going to be doing that. And then once you get to the mountains and you actually have these oxygen tents, now they know, you know that, that that's how it works. And so it's these layers of detail that all you know, add to the, the realism of it. The, David, uh, one of our players, uh, had read about the the breather and how you can actually like it's a conscious effort to breathe through a mask. So that's why you use these 
this caustic soda and then you have oxygen in the tent. He told that story and so you, you get a lot more um, texture to, to, the, to the game, I think. So, so going through the manifest, I actually think it's really valuable and, and it, it depends on your, on, your, on your players a lot, but if you set it up right and, and kind of help them understand why you think it's great, then I, I think it's, it's, it's not a bad exercise at all. That said, um, I think for most groups, it will be a tough one to, to go through. So, so we went through that. Uh, our my players actually missed out on one thing. They missed out on some trail radios. So we'll see if I can if I can make that uh, uh, come into use later on when they're when they're down there. Beyond that, um, I I definitely felt that New York was it was dragging along a little bit. Um, but I the the it's it's problematic as well because we're missing a couple of players and and. One of the big things about a Cthulhu game is, and especially I think this one is, that there's there's an opportunity for a lot of background information, particularly in Beyond the Mountains of Madness, that they would have been able to pull out, especially the journalist, because there's all of this newspaper articles, all this research you can do. And he would have heard the stories about her because he's a journalist. And so so there's a lot of stuff there that, that it, it's really hard for me to, to pull out and of the players to, to, to get them to want to, actually uh, pursue that information you know none of them even looked into who Acacia Lexington is you know they didn't like why is she rich where did she get the money how is she seen you know all they know is that Starkweather doesn't like her beyond that they don't know anything about that they don't know anything about the expedition um, and, and I'm 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 a little surprised that, that they didn't bother to ask but I think part of it is that they just um, they just didn't think of it you know and that's the big problem of course with with investigative investigative games that you have to you have to think about the next thing to do or, or to to say and whatnot so they they got some information about lexington this happened in, in this session and uh I, I had hoped that there had been some more questions, some more interest in like who is this person and, and to get a, a little bit of a rapport going. It was, it's, I find it very problematic when I'm sitting there and, and here's a person who obviously hates the, other, the leader of the other expedition and has a lot of, of reason to believe that they are sabotaging her expedition as well. And you want to get like a little bit of a conversation going, but you can't because that's not really in the character. And so you end up in this weird stalemate and it, um, you know, as insofar as, um, um, insofar as that meeting, I also, I, I had hoped that, that, uh, the character would have spent some, some, um, energy on figuring out like a little bit about these paintings, because I think it adds a lot of, of texture as well. The, the Warwick paintings, although the map, uh, got explained, but I was actually setting that up to be explained no matter what. Um, I would have had her explain it if, if, if he hadn't spent money on it, or sorry, points on it. Because uh, I think that's, building that kind of huge mythology around Antarctica, that's what Beyond the Mountains of Madness does so well. And so you want to you wanna really get those, those things in there, <laughs> uh, however, however you can. And speaking of that, building that mythology, I, I have a kind of a conundrum now because I the players haven't shown a lot of interest in uh, Acacia Lexington and her background, and so they don't know anything about her father. 
they don't know anything about the 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 narrative of Pym uh, manuscript uh, or the missing chapters or his death, which was also mysterious and all this stuff. Like it's, it's all hidden. And there are two reasons I, I need them to know about this. Number one, I think it's cool. I think it adds a lot of stuff to the campaign. But beyond that, I also bought a number of uh, 1931 or, or so, I think, uh, hardback copies of the narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym. I bought seven of them all in all from eBay and I sent them to the players. Uh, and so now they all have this package and unless they unlock that clue, they can't open that package. I told them not to open it. Um, and so, so I need to figure out a way to, to give them the incentive to look into her background more. And I think I'm going to lean on the journalist character and see if I can't get him to um, to look into that a little bit and have, have him kind of dredge up some stuff there. That shouldn't be too hard. And honestly, at this point, I'm, I'm willing to throw this, these handouts, these articles, I'm willing to throw them at the players and have them be... Um, uh, you know, just kind of receive them. I'll, I'll try and make it a little subdued and, and, and not have the other players know about it. Maybe the journalists will know that I'm, I'm kind of like tipping my hand a little bit, but that's that's fine. I'm, I'm just, I, I do feel there's a need there to, to kind of round out her story because she's going to come back and and you'll, you know, also to encourage them to, to kind of take all this information and start working with it and, you know, interacting with the characters and, 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 and all this stuff. Uh, it's It's very tricky. I think particularly with my group, I don't think it's a group that's, it's not as proactive as, as I, I would like it sometimes, but I, that might just be true for all Cthulhu games. You know, you, you really want your players to be much more proactive and ask the right questions. The problem is as a keeper, you know those questions already. And so it's very easy for you to think that everybody else should be thinking the same thing, but you're looking at the actual book, so you know what's, what, what they should be asking. Um, beyond that, you know, uh, it's funny, there, there are some small things that I thought they would pick up on that they didn't. You know, Douglas, for instance, I gave them the address to his hotel. I told them that he'd been murdered. I showed them that Moore's room had been looked through. And yet they never bothered, you know, they never thought to go there. They never even, uh, you know, talked about it. Uh, then they went to the funeral and talked to the brother and... The lawyer, the Brockman, uh, was there, and the I even kind of made a point out of saying he says the lawyer, and then he points to this guy who's standing next to him. He had recently changed his will, and they didn't look into that at all. You know, they just they didn't even hear it. I think um, it's not a it's not a, a big thing, but um, it, as a keeper, I feel sometimes it's a little it's a little annoying because you, you're trying to you're trying to tell people to look into things without telling them to look into things. And so um, there's a couple of those things kind of hanging around a little bit. Um, it, and and I, I do fear very much that you you end up in that, uh, well, then we go drinking. You know, it's like a D&D game. Well, we go get drunk. Okay, great. What, what does that add to the game? Nothing. Um, it would be better if your character had a little bit of uh, personal life, you know, well, I start, I write on my book, or, you know, I go do something that adds something to my character so that I, I'm a human being and not just a, you know, a pawn playing playing chess against the keeper. 
Um, so I'm going to try and pull out that a little bit more in the future sessions, I think. It's, it's, it's really hard because it depends so much on who your players are. And, and I think my players are, are very much kind of actionable players, right? They're not, they're not as story-driven or as, as character-driven as, as some players are. And so you have to kind of play into that a little bit. And um, because that's also where the enjoyment, you know, of the game lies for them. It is in in doing actionable things. Um, so there was this session, um, session three. There was actually some some good discussions. They started putting together a few pieces around Danforth, around Dyer. Um, I had I had halfway expected them to to start looking into that package, but I think maybe I. Maybe I didn't tell them the right information. It's been a while since we played session two, and so maybe they forgot some, you know, the, the immediacy of, of that package having been stolen or just didn't even think about going to the post office. And so I had more kind of push a little bit. And I could have had more go with them to the post office, but I, it, it's always really odd to have these NPCs, you know, do those actionable things because that's what the players are really, you know, are really there for. Um, so... So I went out of the the, the, the the campaign's intention a little bit. Beyond that, um, it, it's now they're on board the Gabrielle. There's, um, I'm just looking through the book a little bit here. The the fire on the pier is is a really great um, a really great ending. Actually, before I talk about that, I should talk about chapter three is very different from the first edition to the second edition. And in case I haven't said this before, I forget, we're actually playing the second edition. Um, I got in contact with Chaz Ingen, who wrote the book originally, and there is a second edition um, that was written uh, some years ago, a couple years ago at least, which has been published in German and in French. And those two editions are a little different from each other as well, but um, but it was originally written in English, but for various reasons, it just never got published by uh, Chaosium uh, in English. And so the only manuscript available for it is actually the one that Chaz Engen has. And so I wrote him, uh, explained to him that we were going to play this, and, and he was really uh, forthcoming and very nice. We've written a, a number of times since then, and I ask him all kinds of stupid questions. And he's, he's, very, uh, he's very nice to, to answer them and, and help fill in information and his thinking behind some of this stuff. All of which um, I, I try to summarize and, and put up on the blog if it if it's, uh, makes any kind of difference. You know, there, there's Some of it's just detail and texture and, and whatnot. The second edition, it, it's actually... Let me quickly just talk a little bit about that. It's huge. It's much bigger than the first edition. Um, especially once you get to the ice, uh, there's a lot more stuff there, and I'm I'm a little hesitant in in figuring out how to how to run that, and so I have to figure that out soon because there's probably I think there are going to be two sessions uh, en route uh, to Antarctica, and then we're on the ice, and then suddenly you know things start uh, speeding up a little bit. The um, the Antarctica or, or sections are, 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 are so big that um, it's hard for me to even kind of keep it all in my head. And I'll talk more about that once we get there. But um, it's definitely weighing on me a little bit trying to figure out, well, do we, do we just fall back and, and do a slightly upsized version of the first edition? Because it has a certain immediacy that the second edition loses. 
and the reason it's bigger, by the way, is because the, the I believe the French, I might be wrong about this, and, and if so, I'm sorry, but I, I think the French publisher wanted to expand it and, and have more, um, uh, more detail, more story, and more uh, adventure going on, you know, beyond the mountains. And, and in a way, that's great because it, it, there are actually, I think the way that, that Jazz wrote it, I think there was some really great stuff there. But I, I also think that you lose some of that, some of that immediacy and some of that tension um, that you get from, okay, you've landed on the other side of the mountains and you don't have a lot of air, you don't have a lot of rations, and suddenly things just start going wrong. It becomes a little bit more of a, okay, let's go over here and see what's here. Oh, the Germans are exploring here. Do you want to go along and, and see what's here? And that could be fun in an exploring kind of way, but I don't think that's really what my players need. I think what they need is for me to just keep upping the tension and the action. And um, when we get to, to you know, the mountains, I, I'm going to feel it out a little bit. But, but I, I think uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull back a little bit on the second edition and push the first edition back into, into focus a little bit. Um, yeah, and, and it's 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 really interesting though. I, I think it, it it's built out that world uh, of the elder things tremendously, and there are some really great pieces in there. Some of the underground stuff is is really fleshed out, and and it almost makes me wanna, you know, just play a, a whole campaign just down there. But but it does change the one of the things I really like about it, which is kind of that that sense of. Um, everything could go wrong at any moment and we should really be getting out of here. But at the same time, suddenly we find this big secret and we have to do something about it. Uh, I, I'm going to, I'm really looking forward to seeing what that's going to play out like, because I'm not sure that my players are necessarily going to do what it says in the book. So we'll, we'll see when we get there. Nevertheless, uh, chapter three, it's very different in the first edition than the second edition. The first edition is, it's the abduction of Nicholas Rorick. Uh, which was always a weird chapter because it, it, the prerequisite for it is that somebody from the expedition goes and scopes out Lexington's house and sees the abduction take place, follows the abductors, and, um, and uh, you know, find Rurik. Otherwise, they're not going to get involved in this. And there's a good chance that, um, um, that they just completely miss out on it. And, and that would be a real shame. And I think the, you can still find all the Pym stuff, but, but Rurik is kind of the, the key to Pym. In a way, I'm, I'm wondering whether I should bring Rurik back just as a friendly, you know, as a friendly uh, uh, guy to, to prod a little bit. But I, I don't know I'm sure about that yet. The difference in the second edition is that Moore actually asks one of the um, investigators to go and talk to Lexington. And I think that's great for a number of reasons. First of all, you actually put them face to face with Lexington, uh, and and that that actually makes a lot of sense. Rather than have her be this distant person, she's she's been right there. They could have asked her any question they wanted, or at least you know at least they have a rapport with her of some sort. And uh, in in the case of our game, the question there were there weren't a lot of questions asked. You know, and then going back to that, like I I wish that somebody had asked, well, who are you? You know, what do you do? Or research her 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 past. Why is she rich? Uh, uh, why is she going to the Antarctic just because she wants to be the first woman? Okay, but but why does she, why does she care about that? What is the rivalry between her and Starkweather? You know, uh, 
none of these questions really got asked, and that's a little bit of a shame, but at, at the same time, it is a, there's only so much you could really get out of that meeting. Uh, you could talk about that, you could have her expand a little bit on her beliefs and her upbringing, and that would kind of set the scene for the Percival Lexington mystery and the, the Pym uh, introduction. But I, I, it's a big step up, I think, from the first edition, actually. I, I think that abduction thing was always something that I thought would go wrong. The only downside is you lose that action sequence. But on the other hand, you get a, an action sequence right after. Because you move to the ship, and then you get the fire. So, um, the fire, finally, you know, you get some action. I think that's actually really great. Um, I... I wish perhaps that I had spent a little bit of time, um, so there's the Trail of Cthulhu conversion document that I use a little bit here. It's a little unclear on the fire and I think I would have liked a little bit more um, action there to, to kind of try to, to make it a bigger scene and have them be more active. But two of them chose to leave, um, one of them was, was there and, and chased uh, Jerry Polk, the arsonist. And that was, I wasn't, honestly, I just wasn't even sure how to handle that because he was just, he was just following him, but he knew he was following him. And so like he, he could attack him, but then again, he's trying to get away. He's not trying to start a fight. So, so I, I played that as best as I could. Um, I think in the case, I would just have him run more, you know, just rather than, than have him even step up, just have him run. Uh, because what are you going to do uh, before you get anybody? Uh, he he's going to be gone. Um, yeah, and then the fire itself. You know, uh, it, it's a good scene, I think. And yeah, so it that kind of rounds out New York a little bit. Um, I don't know that I have a lot of more thoughts than I'm. I'm happy that we're finally getting rolling and that we're going. You know, we're going, and I think my players are too. Uh, there's a lot of stuff in New York to, to take care of. But on the other hand, I, you know, if, if I were to point some fingers, I would say I wish they had been a little bit more active in trying to seek out information, you know, and trying to map out what this story is about um, rather than waiting for things to happen to them. Um, but yeah, it's, it's the problem if anything, with Beyond the, Mountain of Madness, Beyond the Mountains of Madness, is it's a, little, it's a little linear in that sense. So it's not like even if they find all this information, they could do anything, you know, they still have to just kind of move on to the next thing. And, and there's not a lot for them to, there's no mystery to solve yet as such. And so the only thing they can really do is just pick up the information and move, move along. Once they get to the Antarctic, it, it becomes a little bit more interactive, you know, and, and there's a lot of reading out loud uh, of the ship journey and then uh, of the landing on the ice and then finally, you know, you get to the camp and then I think when you're at the camp, um, it, it loosens up a little bit. It becomes interactive and uh, just in the, in the fact that you can, you can start to dig in the various places and stuff like that and explore a little bit. Uh, but but that's that's always been you know one of the one of the things that this this campaign has been accused of is is this linearity and you just kind of got to roll with it and uh, I've I've done what I could to to prep my players and make sure that they understood that you know that I gave them an image of what the campaign was and what it what it wasn't 
and I think they've always been aware that that it was a campaign that um, wasn't quite like like other campaigns. Um, so yeah, that's those are I think my 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 thoughts on on the the sessions so far. The manifests, you know, I think that's probably the biggest thing that people are afraid of. I was definitely afraid of it just because it's not common role playing stuff, but it works out pretty well. Um, it's not too bad. I, I think prepping the players a little bit, making them understand that this is a, you know, this is an, an Antarctic campaign more than it is a horror campaign, and and kind of getting them into that mood and and, and whatnot is is great. Um, I will say that while the, I, I forget if I've talked about this before, I think I might have, but I, I I do sometimes wish that we were running this with Call of Cthulhu. It's obviously written for Call, not for Trail of Cthulhu. And the problem is that now I, I'm running the second edition, which um, the conversion document I have is made for uh, first edition of the campaign. And so it doesn't cover everything. And so I'm trying to wing it, even though I don't, I'm not even that familiar with the rules and with the, the, I don't understand all the skills and all this stuff. So I'm trying to like do a lot of this stuff on the fly. And sometimes it gets a little bit in my way. Um, but it seems to be working pretty well so far. It, it is it is really hard with role-playing games, and skills in particular, I think, is a problem. It was a problem in when we were playing the One Ring 2 that players show up, and then they, they just start talking. You know, They, they don't say, okay, I, I use Bargain. If they showed up and said, I'd like to, to use Bargain to try to get this person to do something, but they don't because the instinct is always to show up and then start saying things. And then, you know, I would have to ask, well, what skill would you use for that? But there's no reason for me because I know what skills they have. Uh, I know what they're trying to do. And unless they specifically have no points in that skill, I'm not going to stop them either. So there's, this is me trying to learn the gumshoe system. And, um, and I, I'm, I do have a feeling that it's going to be hard for me to ever get my, uh, at least some of my players who are used to old school role-playing games where everything is, your know, skills are just used in a completely different way if they're used at all, unless it's a weapon skill. So this is like this. We ran this into this problem with the One Ring Two that there's there's a certain kind of, for lack of a better word, old school way of doing things, and I fall into it as well, where you don't show up, say I'm using this skill, and then start the scene. Um, you do it reversed, and and it it's a weird thing because suddenly the skills are not the resources that they should be, and so I try to. I try to work that into the game and, and keep it uh, balanced a little bit uh, as much as I can. Anyway, um, this was a pretty good session. I hope I hope the next one that we're going to get the other players back um, on board. We do have six players. Um, only three have been in this session. I can't remember if we had three or four in the previous. I think we had four, but one of them stepped out for half the session as well. So. So we've been a little undermanned. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how this plays with with uh, six players. There's a there's a strange thing when you play online games where um, people don't talk amongst each other so much, and and it's actually kind of a hindering thing because on the one hand you want to have more focus, right? Often when you play role playing games around a table, you people easily get defocused because they can just kind of start talking amongst each other and whatnot. So you have to get like like a teacher trying to get students' attention. You have to kind of bring them back sometimes. But the upshot of that is people also start talking about the game itself. And so while you might be conducting a scene, two other people might be talking about 
a clue or something. Uh, and that actually adds a lot. So, so you lose that. And because you lose that, you, you lose a little bit of the, the potential serendipity of people just kind of talking about something and coming to a conclusion and deciding on an action. And, and so everything hinges around those, um, those points of me saying, does anybody want to do anything else? And, and that's, you know, that's like somebody giving a talk and then asking for questions. Often there are no questions because people haven't even thought about asking questions. Um, and so, so that's problematic. I'm, I'm trying to be better at leaving them be, leaving them talking. Whenever they do that, I, I just step right back and just have them talk. Because the more I can do that, the, the more they get to their own, they reach their own conclusions. And, and that's, uh, that's, that's the best. You know, that's, that's when the game really starts to work. And, and so it's, sometimes it's a little stiff. And, and there's, you know, especially in, I think, this, this last chapter, we're not even through all of it yet. Um, but there's so much information to download into their brains. Like there's so many handouts. There's so much stuff about, um, about the other expedition, about uh, Lexington and the Starkweather uh, uh, relationship, about, you know, just all this stuff that's going on. Plus you're, you're, you're getting information from um, Douglas's brother. Potentially you could even go and visit the hotel room and like this package. And like there's so much information just being packed into this session and not a lot of action. And so... It's it's a relief to get to get that action uh, going a little bit, um, yeah. So I think that's actually about it for now. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna ring off and go out into the New York weather. It's fun to be playing actually a game that takes place in New York because I I went and visited the locations that um, you know Pier 74 where that used to be, which is not there anymore. There's a parking lot there. Um, I, the, the old post office, of course, which is still a post office, uh, where the Amherst Hotel supposedly should be. Uh, so I know all these locations. It's really fun to, for me at least, uh, to have them move around in a New York that I know very well. Um, and now it's uh, it's May 31st, and uh, the weather is fantastic outside. I think it's you know about 30 Celsius degrees. So I'm going to go meet my wife and have an ice cream. Meanwhile, um, stay away from those mountains.